I was hired to do the same exact job that I had at Walmart. So on a much smaller scale, of course, you know, much smaller footprint than a Walmart. But the job was the same. My job was to manage all of the, you know, execution of signage at, at the restaurant. So everything from menu boards to window signs to street signs to, you know, out of home packaging uniforms. So kind of anything, you know, with the exception of out of home, anything that kind of on premise that would, you know, I used to say would be printed. I used the same kind of strategy and thought process at Wendy's that I did at Walmart, which was how do we think about the journey a, a consumer takes? Welcome to episode 76 of Clicks to Bricks, the podcast about multi-location marketing. I'm your host, Rob Reed. My guest today is Jason Seeley, and he is the vice president of digital for CKE Restaurants better known as Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. Jason's career includes graphic design and shopper marketing roles with Walmart and Wendy's before joining CKE during the pandemic to accelerate the company's digital transformation. So we talk about what Jason looks for in a technology partner, and he shares some simple culture tips that any company or organization can easily adopt to strengthen the team dynamic. Are you a brand marketing leader interested in networking with others in the multi-location space? Do you want a safe space to share your learnings and experiences and to get advice on how to improve your brand's marketing strategy? If so, then you need to join the Multi-Location Marketing Leaders Coffee Chat community. This exclusive first-of-its-kind community is a place where marketing leaders of multi-location brands can come together to privately share ideas learn from each other, and build relationships. Each month, we feature a peer or industry speaker who will share insights and tips on topics relative to today's marketing needs and challenges. These virtual meetings include lively community discussions where you can ask questions and get advice from other marketing leaders with no recording or selling. In between meetings, you can stay connected with the community in a private Slack channel. This is a great way to network with other marketing leaders, share resources, and get help with your marketing challenges. To join the community, simply visit meetsoshi.com slash coffee chat and submit your application. That's M-E-E-T-S-O-C-I dot com slash coffee chat. Meetsoshi.com slash coffee chat. We hope to see you in the chat. Jason Seeley, welcome to Clicks to Bricks. Thank you for having me. Where are you calling in from? I am in Franklin, Tennessee, so just about 15, 20 minutes south of Nashville. It looks like you're not only working from home, but working from the garage. Yeah, just wanted to find a safe, quiet place without a dog to interrupt us. <laughs> nice. For those who can't see, I'm, I'm looking at two great Mini Coopers, classic like actual Mini Coopers behind Jason, which we were chatting about before we hit record. Well, uh, which is pretty cool. We're both clearly into cars. Yeah, they're fun. They're fun to have. <laughs> come down to Nashville. I'll take you for a ride. <laughs> I would love that. That would be awesome. That's definitely a, a good reason to come. So, because I've never driven in a, an original Mini. So, check that off the list. Maybe this is a fun fact we're about to learn about Jason Seeley that most might not know. That is our, <laughs> that is our first question. I think obviously close friends of mine know, you know, that for obvious reasons. But I, I think in my professional life, it's not something that, I think a lot of people know. I mean, I think the people that work for me, I drive them to work. So, you know, sometimes people see me getting out of them and <laughs> and things like that. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a, 
maybe something people don't know. And I think even more so, it's like I'd consider myself somewhat mechanically inclined. So I mean, I do all my own work, you know, and with when you own a British Mini Cooper, you kind of have to because there's not a lot of folks around that <laughs> that, that, that work on them. <laughs> and you can, like everything's accessible. It's all right there, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I, for sure. Right, yeah. Parts are readily available. Yeah. They're, you know, they're fun. But the fact I was going to use is, and it's not really a, a fun fact, it's more of a interesting fact, is I was going through all of your podcasts and there are six people that I've worked with or for that you've already interviewed. Nice. That I is figure a that's fact. a pretty high number for one person. <laughs> yeah. It's a small world, I guess. Yeah, here for sure. In, in and I'm sure a lot marketing. of it is like the recommendation on who's next. So you always kind of know, but you know, you did one person that I worked for twice, Brandon Roden, and then got a handful of others that I've worked with over the years. So that is a fun fact. I like it, man. We're keeping it in the family here. So let's dive in then. I want to start kind of like 50,000 foot view of marketing today with kind of everything we've gone through over the past, you know, three or four years. What is kind of the, the state of marketing from where you sit? Is that different from where it was pre-pandemic or are we just doing the same thing in a different way? It's certainly been interesting. Now I had the, the fortunate opportunity to be at Wendy's kind of when the pandemic hit, you know, reacting. And I think Wendy's was set up as well as you can be as, you know, a QSR having drive-throughs. We already had delivery implemented and you know, an app launch. So we were able to, I think, you know, kind of manage through that pretty quickly and pretty well. But then, you know, transitioning over to CKE in the middle of it all, where CK didn't really have any of it. So, you know, they had some delivery and they had some, you know, web-based ordering, but they didn't have an app. They didn't have a loyalty program. They didn't have integrated delivery. So, you know, it was kind of a, that was 2021. So a little bit of a scramble still, even, you know, almost a year later. But I've heard others say it, but, you know, and I, I think what happened is it just kind of fast forwarded a lot of things. I think it forced people to get used to ordering from your phones. Even in fine dining, you were scanning QR codes and and and, and ordering something you probably never thought you'd, you'd ever imagine seeing a, a digital experience like that in a fine dining restaurant. So I think it forced a lot of people to to just kind of adopt what was gonna, you know, kind of come anyway. But you know, it's it's also been challenging because it, not everybody wants to order that way still. And, you know, in my world, as someone that kind of leads digital, you want to drive as many folks as possible in to those channels. And it's still interesting sometimes to find out that people are just not interested in ordering, whether it's through a kiosk, whether it's through a phone. There's still some uh, the people that just prefer to either walk into a restaurant or, or go through the drive through and order on their own. And, and I don't know if that's because the, the benefit's not there, or I do think is a case in some scenarios. I think the pandemic fast forwarded a lot of things. And then I think, you know, how you kind of have to market to those people is, you know, there's different expectations now. <laughs> like My next question is kind of like, you know, in this kind of new reality, has the role of brand evolved or changed at all through that? Because now that you can go to these, you know, ordering apps and you've got all the options, you know, you've got all of your burger competitors for Carl's Jr. And a lot of the choice comes down to comes down to brand. Has Have you seen the brand evolve through this kind of new era in QSR? You have to stay relevant. You have to stay, the way that I always think about it is I just, you know, my first goal is to make sure that we are top of mind when a customer is deciding where do they want to go, right? So if they're, you know, in the hamburger or for our brands, you know, it could be anywhere from hamburger to chicken to breakfast. We've got, a, you know, a few categories, you know, it, it really comes down to, I first want to make sure that when they're thinking through the places they could go, that we're one of those. That's the first thing I need them to do. And then from there, you know, you know, being on the digital side, my goal is 
to give them reasons to choose us over somebody else. And that's where loyalty comes in. That's where offer, you know, digital offers and, you know, promotions come in. It's like, how do I make a customer think like, huh, I could go to, you know, QSR, ABC, but with CKE, Hardy's or Carl's, I know I have an offer for a free whatever. So I'm going to go there and, and use that. And then, you know, on top of that, then the goal is like, how do you make them come back? Not just as a discounted customer, right? Because you don't, you know, those aren't your best customers. You want to give them the reason to come back and then give them the reason to keep coming back. So it's, you know, top of mind and relevancy is the first thing for us. And, you know, that's hard because, you know, we're not as big as some of our competitors and, you know, some can outspend us. So I hear a lot of brands say it, but, you know, we've got to be scrappy and, and creative and how we get out there and, and just make sure that people are not only thinking of us first, but in my world, you know, choosing the digital path over, you know, the traditional path. We've been experiencing it in search for the longest time with, you know, this kind of like unbranded search and and Google essentially being the intermediary between the consumer and these brands. And like, and in many cases, brand just kind of not carrying as much weight as it used to, because somebody's like, I want a, you know, burger near me. And like whatever comes up in that, you know, three pack is probably where they're, you know, we know data wise where they're going to end up. And then the same thing with the three PDs. It's like, I want a burger. I open up Uber Eats and like, you know, whatever is kind of there, maybe the brand matters. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just kind of pure convenience. It seems like. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's the challenge, right? It's an ongoing challenge. So it's like it's something you can't take your eyes off for a second because, you know, you may be ranking well today, but you won't tomorrow. And then you've it is you know a moving I mean? target. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got, you know, as a partner, but also as a competitor, you've got three PD buying against you. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, so you've got you've got that challenge layered in there. And and then, you know, just because of the way the, the algorithms work, you know, you've got the challenge of Google reviews and is your restaurant operating well and is it rated well? Because then if it's not, then that's gonna push you further down. Like there's so many aspects of it that you just gotta stay on top of all the time and you know, give for us, it's giving our operators a view into some of that stuff so they can see like if people are looking for just a good place to have a hamburger and your restaurant rating isn't, you know, where it needs to be, you're going to fall down that list. And that's why you can't find yourself when you search. But Carl's Jr., I mean, historically, if I think about when I think about the brand, I mean, definitely some of the bigger campaigns come to mind, like the the Paris Hilton. And didn't you also have like the $6 burger was a campaign, but it was like, the point was basically like, we've got a $6 burger that only cost you X, right? Because like the gourmet burgers were becoming a big thing, right? Carl's Jr. kind of latched onto that. I remember that being- Angus as our Carl's platform, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those kind of like memorable campaigns and kind of product-led campaigns would definitely get me to to choose, you know, Carl's over another. You guys working on anything now? I know you guys like hired a new agency. In terms of being scrappy, that's like, I mean, ideas don't cost that much, <laughs> right? Like a great idea. It's been an interesting, you know, I'd say nine, nine, 10 months for the brand because I was about September of last year, we had a new CMO come in and, you know, we kind of made the call that it was time to split the brands in a way that, you know, truly makes sense. They are very different brands with very different audiences and we've spent many years treating them the same way. So menus with some differences for the most part were the same campaigns were the same LTOs were the same, but yet you've got very different audiences when you think about, you know, a Carl's customer and the campaigns that you remember that you just kind of ran through. There's a bit of a cult following to Carl's brand on the West coast. And then you think of Hardee's, I mean, the Hardee's is, you know, very much, you know, a breakfast first brand, at least we've become that. And so if you're thinking about, you know, we just were in the middle of the El Diablo return, which is a spicy jalapeno popper burger at Carl's Jr. Like you probably couldn't pull that off the same way on the Hardy side. 
that you can on, on the Carl side. So we didn't launch it at Hardee's. We launched it at Carl's. And, you know, that's where, you know, we're really kind of focusing on, you know, flavor profiles, you know, goodness in the making is kind of the campaign for, you know, the Hardy side. So it's all about like, you know, we, you know, make our biscuits every morning. And <laughs> so that's the campaign there. And on the, on the Carl side, it's all about big, bold flavors. So it's, you know, things like El Diablo that's got jalapeno poppers on it and spicy sauce and spicy cheese. And you know, if you like hot, that's the one. So it's been fun, you know, even from a digital perspective to think about it as how do you take what was not once one and now start to really define strategies independent of one another. It is tempting to gain from those efficiencies of doing the same thing for both brands, but it doesn't always, doesn't always pay off though. The concern, I think, at the franchise level when we kind of started talking about the split was, was that efficiency in national advertising, right? It's like I'm benefiting from, you know, scale, but then, you know, you'd be in upstate New York and you'd see an ad for Hardee's and Carl's and there are none in the state of New York. It's like really the best use of spend. So I've listened to a handful of your podcasts and, you know, it's been interesting to t- hear people talking about the local side of it, right? And the, the targets, because that's where we are now. We have two brands that are very local. So it's all about local for us. Yeah. Nice. So let's talk about your career journey, starting with Walmart. What were your roles when you were there? Yeah, so Walmart was, you know, kind of a, a nod on my path. I started on my career as a graphic designer and kind of got a phone call from my brother-in-law who worked there at the time and, you know, suggested I come work at Walmart. So I did. I started out my career as there as a bit more of a production artist. So working on the, the Sunday flyer circular, uh, laying out pages and photo shoots and all that good stuff before, you know, just eventually evolving into a team that kind of led all kind of in-store signage. So that was the in-store presentations team. And uh, I had a team of 54 people by the time that I left. And it was creatives, production artists, copywriters, project managers, and their procurement team. So we literally produced all of the signing from shelf level to what hung from the ceiling, what was on the walls, and you know, both front of house and back of house. That evolved into a, a role that was a lot of fun, a lot of work. I did that for about five years. And I mean, a lot of that was around just like consumer behavior because you're, you know, you're trying to get consumers to do a whole bunch of different things from, you know, before they enter the store to, you know, when they get to the cash register, right? Absolutely. It's kind of, you know, where I say I kind of grew up in my career, learned a ton in, you know, five years is, you know, not a short amount of time, but it's also not a long time. And it really got into the shopper marketing side of, you know, just the strategy and where does signage go and what does it say? And how long does a shopper have, you know, to spend time looking at that? You know, it was always fun to go to a Walmart with my wife and be like, did you see that work work we just did? And she was like, no. <laughs> and I'd say, but you'd notice if it wasn't there. And that's what matters is, you know, you're doing it in a way where you're influencing a customer's path, influencing what they're buying, but they don't even realize that it's happening. Like, that's what I love. Like Walmart tends to be one of those companies that really nurtures talent very well. I mean, I think a lot of people would say, if you have an opportunity to go to work for a company like Walmart or McDonald's, it should be high on your list because of what you'll actually learn. And it also has a pretty powerful alumni network, right? Like, you know, former Walmart employees tend to kind of stick together from what I've heard. So what were some of the big learnings you took away just from that experience of working for that, you know, amazing company? I will say I I didn't appreciate it as much in the moment as I do today. Those that know me have heard me you know, talk a lot about like, gosh, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. But but looking back, I mean, I feel like I, I learned more in my five years there than you can, you know, pay for at, at any school, right? Like, you just you learn so much. And for me, what I think I took away the most was 
really culture. And I think some people get surprised by that because of the way you hear about Walmart in the media. And I was a, a skeptic going in, but you know, there were two things that have stuck with me since I left there. And, you know, the first one is, is, and they're, and they're silly when I really think about them, but they mean so much when you drill into them. And the first one is what they refer to as the 10 foot rule. And the 10 foot rule is something as simple as you just acknowledge somebody that is walking down a hall, you know, and you're passing by, you know, at very culture specific, but it made such a difference. And I don't, I don't think I noticed why it mattered until I went somewhere where it doesn't happen. And people walk by with heads down and, you know, you, you work with hundreds of people and you don't even know who they are. Just like a, like make eye contact, a, l- a little nod, yeah, exactly. something, anything to acknowledge that they exist. Yeah. It's not stop and ask them how their night was, you know, like it's literally just, you know, two humans acknowledging that you're walking past one another. It's that simple, but it's funny. You're like, on the same team, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's just funny because again, like I said, I, you know, going other places and I won't call anybody else specifically, but you know, you walk down the hall and like people will go out of the way to not make eye contact with you, which is just, it's very different and, and very strange and something that I think is not hard to implement, but definitely has an impact on, on culture. And then the second one, I think I'll get a lot, probably a lot of flack for saying, because I know in this day and age, it's hard to do, but they called it the sundown rule. And the, the concept behind that is respond to everybody by the end of the day. And, you know, people are like, well, that's hard to do because you can't necessarily get answers to everything that you're doing by the end of the day. But the intent was, even if you just acknowledged, got your note, I'll get back to you next week or, you know, tomorrow or whatever. It was just a a polite, like, thumbs up, like, as you would reply to somebody on a, a message today, like, acknowledged. And for me, so, I mean, I go out of my way, like, I don't like to see any unread, unresponded to messages in my inbox. And it's something that I took with me. And, uh, you know, I don't necessarily hold others to it. But I think they, they learn that when you're responsive, that they feel that they need to be responsive. So I think it happens naturally. But yeah, just just a couple kind of, you know, maybe somewhat silly, but I think, you know, simple things that can be done at you know the corporate levels that I think has a big impact on culture. I've often wished that there was like a thumbs up feature within email. Right. Because <laughs> like sure. replying to a whole email just to say I got the email and, you know, acknowledging just seems like a waste of an email. But I get the reason for the rule, though. Yeah. And that's why I, I said, like, I'll get flack for it because, you know, it, it's very easy to be on a chain of 10, 15, 20 people and everybody says thank you. <laughs> and now you're just getting bombarded. So, I mean, I understand, like, it may not translate as well today as it did. I mean, I worked for Walmart in 2005. So, you know, I think the way that we use email today and Slack and, you know, all the different messages, <laughs> messaging apps, it's probably a little different than it was back then. But but it's still something I try to at least hold myself to. So then you joined Wendy's. And from what I understand, you were still in a design and merchandising role when you when you got to Wendy's. So what were you doing initially there? And how did that transition into a marketing role? Yeah. So I was hired to do the same exact job that I had at Walmart. So on a much smaller scale, of course, you know, much smaller footprint than a Walmart, but the job was the same. My job was to manage all of the, you know, execution of signage at, at the restaurant. So everything from menu boards to window signs, to street signs, to, you know, out of home packaging uniforms. So kind of anything, you know, with the exception of out of home, anything that kind of on premise that would, you know, I used to say would be printed. I used the same kind of strategy and thought process at Wendy's that I did at Walmart, which was how do we think about the journey a a consumer takes through your, you know, your physical location? And then how do you communicate them in a way that makes sense based on where they are in that journey? So we used to use things like 
the window signs that are around the front of the restaurants as you're driving by the restaurant, that's a billboard. That's you got two seconds to to see what that is and make you turn into our parking lot. And best case, remember for next time. And you see a lot of brands that'll that'll fill those things with photos and word, and you don't nobody's looking at that from the street. And then if they're pulling into the parking lot, they're they've probably missed it at that point because they pulled in and parked right or gone right to the drive through because that's not really what they're focused on at that point. So, you know, so I I spent a lot of time you know with a really great team and and an agency partner working through you know the strategies around you know that drive through journey, dine in and carry out journey. You know everything from we call it the zone strategy. So it's like. They enter the parking lot, they're in the queue, they're picking up their food, they're leaving the restaurant, thinking about every one of those moments as a moment to communicate and do it in a way that, you know, made sense for that moment. And so how did that transition like into into kind of a more traditional marketing role? Yeah, I think I kind of had a bit of a reputation for just being kind of a technology nerd to some degree at Wendy's. I, you know, I was, I was there for a while at this point. It was always the help me fix my iPhone kind of guy. You know, and I voiced my kind of, you know, I am obsessed with digital and technology. I think it became known that everything I was doing was digital. And our CMO at the time came to me and, you know, offered me this opportunity to kind of transition away from, you know, creative and merchandising and go into digital and and really think about the experience that you create on that digital journey should be thought through the same way. So, you know, what's a customer think about when they land on that first page in the app and when they start to place their order? And so, you know, his ask was, I want you to take the way that you thought about merchandising and created a true customer journey strategy around it and do the same in the digital space. So I was very hesitant. I loved my merchandising world. I'd done it for so long. I was comfortable with it. I wasn't sure making that move was, you know, I think I knew it was the right move. I think I was nervous about it. And not having the the breadth of background that I think a lot of folks can kind of grew up in digital or I I didn't, but I jumped into it and I love it. I drive my wife crazy sometimes because we'll be in a parking lot. I'm like, no, I gotta download the app, I gotta I gotta order from the app. Like, <laughs> she's like, We're here, we can just go inside. I'm like, nope, I gotta download and I wanna make sure I know, you know, what all of our competitors are doing, or even if they're not competitors. And if there's a QR code on the receipt to pay, I pay through the QR code. I don't pay with my card, you know, like try to use every single channel I can. So I just very, I'd say, fortunate and luck at Wendy's that they gave me that opportunity and, you know, went on to to kind of build a, a pretty robust app, integrated delivery, loyalty offers, you know, kind of all those things in my time, you know, working on the digital side and, you know, brought like DoorDash in 2017 when, you know, they were very small and only covered about 800 of our restaurants at the time. We signed up with them because they were the ones willing to be the best partner. And obviously now they're they're the dominant provider out there. I love that parallel between, you know, understanding the physical customer journey through a brick and mortar location, you know, whether it's driving by or or walking into the to the store or the restaurant and then kind of saying like, well, actually there's a parallel journey that's happening right now in digital that's only going to, you know, increase and kind of jumping into that. So I'd say kudos to the CMO for seeing that talent potential that you had to actually make that transition. It's like, you know, maybe not didn't see it at the time, or maybe felt a little outside your comfort zone, but that's why we have, you know, leaders to kind of see that in us and see that, wow, this guy's like really good at the physical side. I think he'll crush it on the digital side. So let's, you know, throw him in the water and see if he can swim. Right. The career path change, I think was probably like, it was a defining moment to be like, okay, You've done this world of, you know, shopper marketing in store for so long. And now you're going to kind of, you know, take this, you know, other path in your career. And, you know, looking back, like it's not that big of a stretch, right? It's just the digital space versus the physical space. 
but the, the digital space to me feels physical because it's still an experience that you're creating that someone has to go through. And, you know, so once I kind of got into it, I think I fell into like, I don't even know why I was worried about it before or even <laughs> questioned it for a moment because it's been a ton of fun. And the freedom that I got to build everything as we did at Wendy's was awesome. You know, people had faith in me, even though like, again, like the creative guy that's now over here working on digital and nobody seemed to question it. So it made me feel better about, you know, confident, I guess, and the ability to do it. And so, as you mentioned earlier, then you get to CKE and they've got, you know, very little of the tech stack that you had pretty much built at Wendy's. So talk a little bit about, um, you know, building and managing your marketing tech stack and, you know, maybe kind of some of the big layers that you've put in place since you got to CKE. Yeah. So I know you've had Phil Crawford on, you know, and he started just a few months, uh, yeah, a few months before I did. Um, and he, you know, he did a lot of work very fast to kind of get the, you know, POS, you know, other systems in place to be ready for kind of moving into a, a digital space. So when I came on board, working with a different vendor for online ordering stuff, they were in the middle of transitioning over to Olo. So Phil was kind of like all in on just standing up Olo, getting that working and integrated for both, you know, third-party delivery and our own own ordering channels. And then we partnered with an agency to kind of build our app. So I got to be a part of of that whole process and defining what's this app going to look like from, you know, start to finish. And then, you know, where it really came into is is picking like the loyalty platform. You know, we didn't have a loyalty platform when we launched our app. We were having discussions with different partners and, and trying to figure out which one to go with. We're with Punch and, you know, we landed on Punch and we built a pretty decent loyalty program with them over the past. And it's only been about a year and a half since we went with it. So I rely heavily on my technology partners to focus on the tech stack that makes sense from an architecture standpoint. And they rely heavily on me and my team to make sure that the customer facing requirements that we have, or even marketing requirements that we have exist in that platform. So they may like one more because it fits better into their architecture, but I might like one more because the functionality of it is stronger. And you know, we, we determine what trade-offs are okay, and then we land on it together. So I'm fortunate to have a partner like Phil who's willing to, to kind of consult with us along the way and make sure that the, the technology that we're, we're building within the entire brand, and again, this goes down to franchise level, so it matters there too, is all working as it's supposed to and not only allows us to solve the immediate challenge, but you know, looking forward to what do we need to do to just continue to grow that channel in, in a way that we don't have to change partners because we've picked a, a platform that's limited, right? You know, we have obviously have a lot of CMOs on the show here, and this is the question that I can't really ask them because they're kind of like the, you know, the folks who sign the check but don't actually you know, work with the partners. So when I get this opportunity to ask questions like this, I, I like to take it. So what do you most look for in a technology partner? Like where do tech providers get it right? Where do they get it wrong in working with you and CKE? I actually love this question because it matters a lot. And my answer, you know, you'll hear something that I think is extremely important. And that's just, it's a partner first. There are so many folks that are willing to sell you a platform. And, you know, you may need that platform, but, you know, when you're a smaller, you know, I'll just say digital organization like my team is, you know, you need partners that are willing to kind of help push you along because I don't have dedicated resources to SEO. So for us, it really comes down to, you know, who can we find that, you know, has the right platform to support our needs, but is willing to kind of help us along. And I don't necessarily mean doing work that, you know, may not be 
work that they should be doing on their side. But, you know, being a strategic partner and helping us say like, you know, if I think of SEO, you know, it's something as simple as like, you know, there's all these opportunities as you're launching a new product or, you know, a day part that maybe you're not ranking high enough on, like, and we see this in the way that you've got your pages built or, and coming to us and letting us know where the opportunities are. I always like to tell partners that we work with that, don't worry if I'm not reaching out to you. It's because we're busy. We're doing a bunch of other things, but please reach out to me and tell us where the opportunities are and help us there. I say that it's kind of a high level general statement. I don't think it applies to every single scenario, but you know, I want a good partner that, you know, it has not only passion for the work that they're doing, but passion for the business they're supporting. So with me, you know, I, I want someone that, you know, understands QSR and as best to their ability, they're a QSR customer and they understand the challenges that we have in that space. And, you know, it drives me crazy when I hear people talk, I don't eat fast food. And it's like, that may be true, but why are you saying that to me? (laughs) You know, it's like, go figure out what our everyday looks like and understand what those challenges are. And then you'll be even better of a partner at that point. I say the same thing to my own team, like be a customer, be a customer of us, be a customer of our competitors and know our space. That's the biggest thing for me is the technology, you know, from our side of it's the easy part because the partner has done all the hard work to build the technology. What I don't want, and another way of saying it maybe, is what I don't want is a one-size-fits-all. Like, here we built this thing, execute it, and the way we've done it for everybody else will work for you. That vendor partner should be looking at how do I adjust my product, my tool to support who I'm working with. And just because you're working with three different hamburger brands doesn't mean that they're all the same and what we need. And so it can't be a one-size-fits-all approach. So that's what I mean when I say partner is like understand our challenges as a brand and don't assume that our challenges are the same as Wendy's or Burger King or McDonald's, you know, these, these other big burger chains. I think the biggest mistake that tech providers make is that, you know, they understand that they're in the SaaS business, but they kind of lean a little too heavily on the first S, the software, and kind of forget that there's this other capital S called service, (laughs) right? It's software as a service and they capitalize that as for a reason, but so often, you know, software providers don't really get that and kind of, you know, just kind of give you the software and say, good luck. Right. And that's exactly. Yeah. I mean, that is like, you know, here are all the great things this tool can do. You know, we're going to hand the keys over to you and then you know, the only time you hear from them again is when they want to sell you the next product. And it's like, hold on a second. Can we, can we get the one we have? You know, is it perfect? No, then let's keep, let's keep, you know, striving for the best it can be before we, you know, go out and invest more in in the next thing. We've talked about this offline, but, you know, I really think that that kind of proactive service model is what sets, you know, great tech partners apart from good ones. And it's because like, you know, the tech partner should be calling you more than you're calling them, right? (laughs) And calling because... They're looking for the opportunities we have to continue to be better as who we are, not because we want to sell you the next product. That happens a lot too. And we've got great partners that, you know, provide a great you know, product and we don't talk to them a lot and it's fine. It's funny when I do like, you know, we do annual business reviews or quarterly business reviews with some of these partners and I start saying like, well, we want to do this and we're trying to think about this. And they're like, oh, well, we can help you with that. It's like, well, where have you been? <laughs> we're not just sitting here you know, just doing the same thing over and over again, we're trying to get creative. And I've spelled out a lot of, you know, competitor examples that I love that not to repeat them, but like, thinking about the creative aspect of I always use the Whopper Detour as one of my favorite examples of, you know, just a fun, silly, 
you know, creative way of, you know, I don't know if you remember the Whopper Detour campaign. It was Burger King used location services to drive you to a McDonald's parking lot. And when you got to a McDonald's parking lot, unlocked like a 59 cent Whopper. So the whole concept was like, when you get to a McDonald's, we're going to push you an offer for a Whopper. So you come to, to Burger King instead. And, you know, some people think like, why would you want to drive them to a competitor's parking lot when you could just drive them directly to a restaurant? I think it was the innovation behind how they use location services at the time that made it fun and interesting that I liked <laughs> That's about funny it. because I actually, you know, back in the day when I was kind of trying to help companies fix their lat long problems, I actually showed Burger King an actual real world example where they were sending competitors with their long data to a McDonald's. Mm. <laughs> actually showed them like on Google Maps. like <laughs> So in this location, when people say they want to go to your Burger King, they're actually driving to a McDonald's. That's how bad that lat long problem was back in the day. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, maybe when they figured it out, they launched that campaign. But, you know, and, and it could have been more of a small, you know, viral thing. But just, again, for me, it was less, you know, exactly what it is they were doing and more the the fun, innovative way to think about at that time, how do we use location services in a way that's fun and different. And and they've done it. And I've got ideas that, you know, I'm hoping partners figure out how to do and, and uh, you know, using some of them are location services, some are just, you know, fun and different that it, it's just, yeah, it's finding the folks that want to kind of jump in with you and, and maybe try something they've never done before and be a leader and some fun ways to use technology that you may not have thought of before. That kind of like brings up another question that like, you know, there's like now thousands of different tech providers, you know, vying for your attention and, you know, trying to write every, every day. day. It's just like, <laughs> you're just inundated. So like, you know, there's obviously way too many. I mean, you could spend all day, every day taking meetings and still not be able to meet with all of them. So any tips on, you know, what it kind of takes to to break through and actually get your interest to take a meeting? I can tell you it's not emailing me every single day. That doesn't work. But it happens. Emailing me, LinkedIn, you know, all the different channels they can get a hold of me. And then doing it to 10 other people in the company also. That's that's the first, you know, opportunity for me to be like, I'm not interested. I mean, honestly, it's I have the fortunate opportunity to be under the Rourke umbrella. And so we've got a lot of restaurant brands, you know, kind of that sit under that umbrella and we have some level of access to them. And the beauty of that is we can share, like, who do you work with? You know, what technology works? And so for me, it's more word of mouth, you know, first and foremost, than it is cold calls or cold emails. Most of those just go right in the deleted box without even a whole lot of thought for me. And I'm probably maybe a little more extreme than most. I literally just hit delete. Like, you could have just told me something amazing. And if I don't know who you are as a brand, I normally hit delete. And that's not fair in a lot of cases. <laughs> but you know, it is with the amount that come in, it kind of the default reaction to me. So, you know, I do go back through sometimes when I'm looking for something specific and thinking like, okay, I think I remember seeing an email come in at some point from this vendor that offered this third service. Maybe, maybe I'll go back and dig that out. Or, you know, I've still got connections at other companies that I used to work for. And I'll ask, say, hey, who, who do you use? Or, you know, who would you use if you weren't using them? Or, and so I think, as we talked about in the beginning, the industry at the end of the day is small. So I take advantage of as many folks that I've you know been able to cross paths in my career and find out who they're using. And then, like obviously, I'm sure you're getting a lot of kind of AI pitches right now because that seems to be the tech du jour. Do you have a view on how you know AI will impact your marketing organization specifically? Are you kind of you know looking at integrating 
AI, do you think it's going to have a, you know, an impact over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely going to have an impact. I think what we need to figure out is is how and, and where within our industry. I mean, we're doing the AI drive-through stuff like every drive-through brand is today. Like we're not unique in that sense. Uh, we've been testing it for a while. I don't think it's ready yet. I, I'll, I'll be the one to say that out loud. I think it's close. Um, and the only way for it to improve is to, is to keep doing it. Um, so you can't not do it. It has a, a negative impact on speed of service at the drive-through for QSR brands today. That needs to be improved before I think it can have kind of mass market. But aside from that, you know, I honestly think about it from the standpoint of, you know, when we talk about you know one-to-one marketing, the reality is one-to-one marketing is not one-to-one, right? It's one-to-some. So it's like you build a like audience and you market to those people, you know, in whatever way that is, you know, h- how you want to target them. And I, and I think specifically in my space from a CRM point of view, it's like this person loves bacon cheeseburgers. So let's target this bacon cheeseburger lover or whatever that might be, right? When you think about what AI can do, it's like, and, you know, I think data analysts may hate me for saying this, but I think to have AI be able to comb through your customer and their order history and whatever other data you have on them, and then automatically figure out like, what's a campaign to drive that customer back that can be one-to-one because it's more of an automated process than it is a manual build the segment, build the creative, build the, you know, whatever. And then you don't do that today because it's not efficient, but to be able to have, you know, kind of AI be able to build all that out based on, you know, if you have a million customers that you're targeted on, you could potentially have a million different versions of messages that goes out because you're not having to build a million different versions of it. It's doing it for you. Yeah, it seems like with like things like ChatGPT, you know, kind of generating copy and text, but like doing it, the prompts that you'd put in was like, basically like, write an email for Jason Seeley, been in this many times and ordered this and this and this and like, send just one email to him. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That yeah. would be that would be one to one. And obviously, nobody can do that. No human could do that. But Right, I, don't right, right. I don't know if that's been being done yet or review response seems to be, you know, some of the low hanging fruit right now with kind of generative AI. For sure. I think that's a great place to start too, is using it in, in that form. Because again, it's it's all about efficiencies and resources to, if you look at Google reviews alone, it's a lot of people <laughs> and to be able to respond appropriately to every single one is impossible. So you start to pick and choose, right? Like, you want to respond to the, the customers that are happy with you and thank them for their business, but you also want to take care of the ones that are, you know, unhappy with their experience. So it's a lot. So I think from an AI perspective, like that could be huge. But I think we've got to we've got to think beyond the obvious, right? I mean, those who are going to be able to figure out that, oh gosh, didn't even think of that. That makes perfect sense to do it that way. Are going to be the ones that win. That's why I think about everything from upselling, you know, from a digital experience standpoint anyway, to be able to have an AI engine driving upsell because it's learned you and what you like and, you know, it knows what's in your basket and can not recommend it more than once or because you've already ordered it or, you know, whatever the the variables are within that, you know, it can just get smarter and smarter as you go and take away some of that manual work around, you know, all these different customer journeys and paths that we build from a, from a, you know, CRM standpoint. I think it's also just about like marrying data sets, right? Because there's still so many data silos within marketing organizations that aren't, you know, able to talk to each other and kind of having that AI layer that takes your search data and your CRM data, your social data, and is able to try to make sense of it all and give you actual insights and recommendations of, you know, this is what you should be doing versus this. Absolutely. And I think the other piece to that is, 
is making sure that the organization is taking full advantage of that data beyond, you know, what I do. Like, you know, for me, it's like I look at you as a customer, you're, you're, you know, I might throw you in a segment, whatever. But, you know, to think about how you use it across, you know, media buying and advertising and, you know, think about location planning for restaurants or whatever retail that you're in. I just think there's so much in that data that I don't think companies are are using it as well as they could. It's They have a lot of it. The hard part is, <laughs> as you said, in a lot of cases, they're sitting in a lot of different places and it's just not all together in a way that, you know, feels you can use it to your benefit. But, you know, those that, that are willing to, you know, spend the extra effort on resources to analyze that and figure out what to do with it and think about it beyond just marketing, you know, I think those are companies that'll win. So let's talk a little bit about some career advice. You know, you're the you're the first guest I've had who started in graphic design. So I think that's really cool in that that journey that we talked about earlier. How are you advising, you know, young marketers who are like just joining your organization for the first time or, you know, getting their first marketing job out of college? Like what's your advice to them today? Oh gosh. I'm glad I'm not in their shoes anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. I've got, you know, kids in their, their, their 20s. I've had to have conversations with them. And it's kind of like, I guess because of the path that I took, you know, it's don't necessarily worry about the one you're in today, as long as you don't hate it. Like, I'm very, very clear with anybody that I talk to is it's not worth your time to be in a job you hate. So if you don't like it, and it's not good for the company that you're working for either, right? Because you're, you're just not performing. And sometimes that can be, be toxic depending on the person, but it's do whatever it is and kill it. Like, you know what I mean? Just be the best at it and then figure out from there. I think you learn the things that you want to do through that experience. And I go back to my first job out of school, you know, and, and I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. And I was like, I've got a real job. And looking back, I'm like, you know, it was awesome to have and I wouldn't change anything, but it was such a, a nothing, <laughs> you know, looking back on it now, I'm not sure it's necessarily moved me in, in the, to where I am today, but but that's the point, right? Is you don't know. It's funny because I think about my time at Walmart and you mentioned like how good they are from a people development standpoint and all those things. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of so many different mentoring programs and emerging leaders programs and things like that. And the thing that I struggled with the most in those experiences is someone saying to me, where do you want to be in five years? I kind of, to some degree, have refused to ever answer that question because my philosophy is like, I'm not done with where I'm at now. Like I can't, focus so much on that five years down the road where I'm, I feel like I'm cutting short what I could be doing today. And so I worry about the now and what I'm doing now. And, and I've kind of been, you know, again, my path is unique to some degree. And I feel like part of that is because I've just kind of been along for the ride to some degree and just been like, okay, yeah, let's go try that. Cool. Move from Pittsburgh to Arkansas and work for Walmart. I go, okay, sure. Let's go do that. And just never been afraid to kind of just feel it out and see what happens. And, you know, if you don't like it, go find something else. But I guess if I had to leave one thing, because I feel like I rambled a bit there, is don't be afraid, go to an opportunity that interests you no matter where it is. And I think that's the one thing that if I think about my my career, I've never been afraid to pack up and move for an opportunity. There's so many people I think that are afraid, like I've got to find a job in this town because this is where I live. Or it's got to be remote, right? Or yeah, remote, but for so sure. Like, for yeah, sure. I think this... that's the newer part of it that I think definitely changes things. But if it's not, and you know, if you find like the perfect job and it's everything you wanted to do and it's, you know, six states away, do it. No, you can move I, back. I mean, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, like, I would say if, if you're young, you know, if you're out of college or in your 20s still, 
I would say do not work remote. Like get into an office because that's where you actually learn and and it also becomes a part of your you know your your social sphere is your workplace. Like I mean the I've made yeah. some of my best friends in my my corporate environments than I have outside for sure. And yeah, I I used to say I used to say move to either New York, LA or San Francisco. Like that used to be my advice kind of pre-COVID was like those are the, you know, economic centers of our country and that's that's where you have the most potential to grow, right? Like unlimited potential in those three cities. And I personally chose LA. I took my own advice when I was younger. Now it's not so much, but I would say definitely get into the office and work with people. I was going to say, like, <laughs> I chose Arkansas, Columbus, Ohio, and Nashville. So <laughs> it's kind of, you know, but no, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's something to be said about, you know, you limit yourself if you're limiting where you're willing to do the work. And again, remote has changed things for sure. But I do agree that that experience that I've gained over the years from all of my time in, in offices like Walmart and Wendy's and the people I've got to meet that you wouldn't meet virtually. And I'm a huge supporter of remote work. So certainly not suggesting that remote can't work, but you know, there are it's differences. It's great if there you're married with kids, but you know, if you're young and you think, oh, I've got all this flexibility because I can work remote and I can travel all the time and this and that, like, sorry, you're missing something from your work experience. I think we're seeing it, you know, happening now, this kind of, you know, ditch to ditch kind of scenario. And we're going to land in the middle, right? Like went from everybody in the office all the time to everybody remote all the time. And I think a lot of companies are revisiting their policies and landing somewhere in the middle where it's not a five day in the office, it's a three day in the office, or, you know, it's a couple times a month, we need people in the office together and people kind of moan and groan about it until they do it really. I'm so glad we spent this time together. And they see that value. And I think exactly what you said, that in office relationship, just kind of just seeing what goes on around you is is valuable. All right, let's wrap it up with the lightning round. So oh boy. quick responses, one word, one sentence, whatever comes to mind. So the first one is TikTok. Don't use it. <laughs> I have an account. I have an account. So when people send me TikToks, I can see them, but I'm not a big TikTok user. I know it's an important piece of the business, but I'm not a user. Influencer marketing. Interesting. I think it's changing a lot. I know I'm a big YouTube person. I've always been a big YouTube person. And, you know, it's funny to see how, how they drop in ads. You know, some of them try to sneak them in. Some of them just cut to a commercial. And then, you know, we do a, a lot of influencer marketing at CK. And I think it's just a tricky one. It's like, I don't know if I have a strong opinion either way on it right now. <laughs> I think you got to do it. I think you got to do it. But I think you just got to be smart about how you do it. How about agencies? With a creative background, my answer to that has always been, I think... There's a lot of work that you can do in-house where you've got people that work for the brand that can be very deep into the brand and passionate about the brand they work for and deliver amazing work. But I don't think you, you can do it alone without the innovation and creativity that can come from agency partners to help you. So I think that the, the concept of a, a hybrid approach in what do you do in-house versus what do you do with, third, with, with agencies I think in the middle is a really good place to be. All right. Last one is Yelp. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's to me, it's one of those platforms that, you know, I know where the value still stands. It, it seems like it's not a, as much of a consumer facing thing anymore. At least in my experience, when I search for, if I'm in a town I've never been to before, and I'm like, I want to find the best dinner, I will skip the Yelp responses. I won't even look at Yelp because I feel like it's what you get in your top 10 Google style algorithms, not 
reading into like I'm looking for something different and unique. I'm not looking for, you know, no offense to these brands, but you know, I'm not looking for QSR. If I want, you know, I want to find something cool, different, fun, unique. I want to land somewhere where it's going to tell me about the cool, unique places, not results based on how many reviews and what's near me at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is this is <laughs> also where me, I that, think like AI assistants are going to help a lot going forward when they really know us and they can just say, you know, recommend a restaurant and it's going to get it right, right? <laughs> yeah, and know, know what I mean when I say, when I say hamburger and I mean, what do I mean by that? Versus, you know, there's a lot of QSR hamburger places, so I may mean that, but when is that time where I mean... I want to be able to say not QSR <laughs> and deliver me something, you know, unique. Or I just think that it's always interesting when you look at Yelp and look at the top 10 of whatever it is you're searching for and it feels bought. It doesn't feel as real. If that makes sense. Well, Jason Seeley, thanks so much for joining us on Clicks to Bricks. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, Be sure to share it on LinkedIn and to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter at clickstobricks.fm for exclusive content and previews of upcoming shows. I'm your host, Rob Reed, and this is Clicks to Bricks, a podcast about multi-location marketing. Clicks to Bricks.